I love living in Toronto for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones has to be the restaurants. COVID killed me. <laughs> we enjoy such a variety in our ethnically diverse city. Uh, the cuisine of the world is at our fingertips. But something I've always been a little self-conscious of as a Canadian is that we really don't have our own cuisine, do we? When's the last time anyone said, honey, let's stay in and order some Canadian food? Oh, what would that even be? Poutine, maybe? Timbits? Um, we, certainly, we certainly don't have a staple diet. Something as Canadians, we eat every single day. Uh, but many people in the world do. If you were to ask hundreds of millions of people what they ate today and what they're going to eat tomorrow, you're going to get a one-word answer. Rice, fish, yams. Uh, and that was the culture of Jesus' day. So if we want to understand John chapter 6 and what Jesus means when he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life, then we need to understand something of how food is viewed in the first century because the Bible was written in a relatively poor, unindustrialized, agrarian society. And so the symbolism connected with food and bread is quite different from our own. Uh, we think of food differently, uh, so we have to fuse our cultural horizon with that of the first century. Consider this. In Canada, what happens to our access, our access to food, if there's a drought in the prairies or a flood? Nothing. The price goes up, but our access to food isn't really affected. There are no bread lines in this country. Uh, baby formula, maybe, but not bread. Uh, but in many parts of the world, if there's a flood or if there's a drought, you starve to death. For people of my generation, uh, the country of Ethiopia is proverbial for famine and starvation. One million people died in the 84-85 famine. That's what happens in agrarian, non-industrialized cultures when famine strikes. In Ontario, the average household spends 10% of its income on food, but in the ancient world, 75 to 80% of one's income went to buying food. You, you literally worked to eat. Never mind saving up for a down payment on a condo overlooking the Kidron Valley. You worked to eat. And if you didn't work, then you starved. It was as simple as that. Now, when I think of bread, I think of peanut butter sandwiches. I think of toast, stuff like that. Uh, actually, there isn't really any bread in our household. Um, now, in the first century in Israel, bread was one of two staples, the other being fish. That's what you ate every day. And without bread, you died. In other words, in Jesus' day, bread sustains life. That's how people thought of the stuff. It's like how we think of oxygen. I'm sure you've noticed that Jesus makes some very dramatic statements regarding bread in this passage in relation to himself. Verse 33, the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Uh, verses 35 and 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 58, 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. But if we understand that in this culture, bread sustains life, and that without bread you die, then we see something of where Jesus is going when he calls himself the bread of life, don't we? Without Jesus, we die. Two more things to help fill in the context. First, we need to bear in mind that Jesus has just miraculously provided bread for 5,000 men. Uh, and now, the people want to make him king of Israel by force. And we can understand why. Jesus can provide free food miraculously. Which means the nation's disposable income just increased 400% overnight. If he's their king, and he's just making bread like that. Can you imagine? I mean, here in Canada, any political party guaranteeing a 400% increase in disposable income would win any election, hands down, no matter what kind of crazy other policies they have that they're espousing. Um, and the Jews in John 6, they're all thinking, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. It's the health and wealth and prosperity gospel in all its glory. And they want to make Jesus king by force. Not because they recognize who Jesus is. They haven't read the first five chapters of John's gospel. Uh, but rather because what Jesus can do for them. But Jesus isn't that kind of a, of a king. He isn't that kind of a Messiah. He's the kind of Messiah who dies in shame on a cross, rejected by even his own father. He's not a magic genie king who creates bread out of thin air. So Jesus withdraws to a mountain to be by himself before making good his escape in the middle of the night by walking across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Nobody was expecting that. But these people aren't so easily put off. So they follow Jesus, which means in our text today, Jesus is speaking to some of the same people that he miraculously fed the day before. That's a very important detail. The other piece of background information that we need to bear in mind is the account of, Jesus, of God providing manna for the people of Israel in Exodus 16. I read that account for us earlier. Uh, he says, Jesus says he is the ultimate manna from heaven. Which means the manna back in Exodus was serving as a type. It was serving as a shadow which Jesus now fulfills. That super important because the people of Israel need to respond to Jesus and his mission properly and they're not they don't understand who Jesus is nor why he has come from heaven they don't understand that the miracle of the loaves has a significance beyond itself that Jesus was doing a whole lot more the day before than just uh, creating a, an all-you-can-eat buffet but that's how they're viewing him the feeding of the 5,000 was a symbol-laden miracle. It was a sign pointing to the gospel, a sign pointing to Jesus himself, and Jesus explains how that is by launching into what we've come to know as the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. Beloved, in these verses, we, we learn that Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us. 
because Jesus himself is God's manna. Jesus himself is the ultimate bread from heaven. That's the significance of the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel. If we come to Jesus and eat the bread he gives us, we will have eternal life. One commentator writes this, This miracle points to the fact that Jesus not only provides bread, but rightly understood he is the bread. He is the staple apart from which there is no real life at all. And because Jesus himself is the true manna from heaven, Jesus can speak of the bread that he gives to the people as being his own flesh, which he gives for the life of the world. As we'll see, that's what Jesus means when he speaks of us eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's not cannibalism. It means coming to Jesus and believing in him for eternal life. So, what's this sermon about? What's this text about? It's all about who Jesus is and how we must all come to him through faith and believe in him if we're to have eternal life. That's basically the theme of John's gospel. And that's our first point. You can see in your bulletin, Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. And we know the context. Jesus is being followed by a crowd who want to make him king of Israel by force, but for entirely selfish reasons to their thinking, what Jesus can give them is more precious than Jesus himself. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed. You haven't, you haven't understood how the miracle I performed in the multiplication of the loaves actually points to me but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, your motivation for following me all over this lake is entirely selfish. Free bread, a 400% increase in disposable income. So, beginning in verse 27, Jesus begins to explain the hidden meaning and significance of the multiplication of the loaves to the crowd. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What Jesus is saying to the crowd, what he's saying to all of us, New City, is don't work for food that spoils. Don't let your passions in life be for things that are transitory, right? Things that moth and rust destroy. Let it be for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So what these people need to do is get their focus off the food and onto Jesus. They need to start sorting out who Jesus is and why he's come. Friend, ask yourself, what is it that gets you passionate about living life what's your greatest love perhaps you have five or six things all working together which promote your happiness and your sense of purpose those things those people those accomplishments that make life sing 
But ask yourself, in light of what Jesus says in verse 27, will any of it endure to eternal life? Or is it food which eventually spoils? See, that's the elephant in the room that no one talks about. That, that our life and everything in it is a passing vapor. And then there's eternity. Eternity. Picture a parakeet in your backyard perched on a sandbox. Imagine you could instruct that parakeet to pick up one of the grains of sand from that sandbox in its beak and then fly to the moon and drop it off. Let's say it takes one million years for that parakeet to get to the moon. It puts down the grain of sand and then it flies back to planet Earth. It takes a million years for him to get back and then he picks up the next grain of sand and he flies to the moon. He drops it off. He flies back to the earth. One million years there, one million years back. One by one, the parakeet takes each grain of sand in the sandbox. He takes it to the moon. When he's finished, you take him to the Sahara Desert. You say, I want you to clear the sand off this place one grain at a time. Take it all to the moon. Same deal as before. When he's finished that, you say, three-fourths of the Earth's surface is water. Let me drain the oceans dry. At the bottom of the ocean, there is a great deal of sand. Take all of it to the moon, one grain at a time, one million years there, one million years back. When he finishes, if you could add up all the millions of years it has taken to remove all the sand from all those places, and then you repeat it a million times over, and then a billion times over, and then a trillion times over, all that time hasn't even made a dent in eternity. We haven't moved the needle that much. It, we can't even begin to comprehend it. Jesus can comprehend it. And he wants us to look at the reality of eternity full in the face. And he warns us, friends, don't be foolish and let your passions in this world, focus on transitory things. Don't work for food that spoils. Aim for food that endures to eternal life. Eternal life which Jesus will give you. Right? You can't buy it. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. You don't deserve it. The Son of Man will give you food that endures to eternal life. The same Son of Man upon whom God the Father has placed His seal of approval. And how do we receive this food? What does it look like? Let's keep reading. Jesus has just said, don't work for food that spoils. And the people fasten on the word work when Jesus is really talking about what to aim for, right? Like aim for food that endures through eternal life. So they come back to him and ask in verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? What must we do to get eternal life? Just, just tell us, Jesus, we'll be sure to do it and live so do you hear that the self-justifying arrogance? Just tell us. We'll do it. Verse 29. Jesus answered, The work of God, what God requires, is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Beloved, this is the essence of the gospel, the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. This is the essence of human salvation from the penalty and the power of sin. Eternal life 
Eternal life is a free gift from God. It's not granted through doing stuff. How many billions of people are deluded on that front? It's not granted by God from doing stuff, but by believing in a person. What God requires of all people is to trust in Jesus, to believe in the one God has sent. It's all here in the text. The work God requires of people, if they are to have this food, which results in eternal life, is belief. Belief is the work. Belief in Jesus, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has come to accomplish. Now, the people clearly see that Jesus is upping the ante here by making some very, very high claims about himself. He's just said, Jesus has just said that eternal life is wrapped up in who he is. And they're thinking, well, okay, but we can't trust every snake oil salesman who comes along, can we, right? So how can we know? How can we know that you came from God, Jesus? You have to authenticate yourself to us if we're going to trust you on this. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Albert Einstein once said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. What he meant by that is that there's uniformity, there's logic, there are laws in the universe. Einstein was pushing back against the randomness of quantum mechanics, uh, specifically the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. If you've seen Breaking Bad, you know all about Heisenberg. And borrowing from Einstein, the atheistic American humorist Woody Allen joked, God doesn't play dice with the universe, he just plays hide-and-seek. Because for Woody Allen and for many, many others, God has not revealed himself to the extent they would like in order to be persuaded of his existence. And perhaps somebody here today is thinking along similar lines. God has not revealed himself to the extent I require in order to be persuaded of his existence. But if God were to do something miraculous before my very eyes, if, if Jesus himself were to make an appearance today and divide the waters of Lake Ontario, then I could believe in him. The problem, the sinful problem with that sort of thinking is that God is not an infinitely powerful being we control. And in John 6, Jesus, the eternal word, is not about to start performing miracles on demand like a trained monkey to vindicate his authority. The people have just reminded Jesus that Moses provided Israel manna, bread from heaven, and now they want him to do the same. After all, how did he just miraculously fed 5,000 men the day before? If you can do it once, why not again and then again? Verse 32, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So do you see what he's done? He, Jesus isn't jumping through any sorts of hoops here because they, they've sanctimoniously quoted an Old Testament proof text Jesus views things on a whole different level. 
And, and rather than the manna in Exodus chapter 16 uh, sort of being a test for Jesus now, Jesus says, no, the manna in the wilderness was actually prefiguring. It was an announcement looking ahead to his own person, his own ministry. Jesus is the true manna from heaven, the ultimate manna from God, not that manna back there in the desert. Remember, bread is one of two staples in this culture. Without bread, you die. Bread sustains life, and Jesus says he is the bread of God. Jesus is the bread, the manna from heaven that gives eternal life. And it's that this first point, as it states in your bulletin, Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. That's the sign that people did not see in the multiplication of the loaves. That's the sign they don't understand. Jesus is the bread of life. And this life Jesus gives, he gives freely, freely to sinners. Which is shocking when you consider that the Bible insists that we're all in rebellion against the God who is our maker, whose image we bear. We're all a people who seek to overthrow God's rule, who seek to kick over his royal throne. In fact, the Bible insists that all of our problems, without exception, can be traced to this fundamental source, our rebellion, and and the just curse of God that we've attracted by our rebellion. And that rebellion, that cosmic anarchy where we, we shake our puny little fist in God's face and say, I will be God. I am an autonomous being, and I love other things more than my creator, more than my king, so I will disobey him. Friends, that rebellion attracts God's personal anger. And because God loves justice, because God hates evil, sinners like you and me are deserving of death. That's God's just sentence for sin. Mortal death here on earth, and then what the Bible calls the second death, in an eternal hell. But just listen to the thundering repeal of that eternal death sentence in verse 33. This is music in the sinner's ears. Verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is speaking of himself. He mediates God's life to us, but his Jewish audience doesn't understand. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They don't understand. They they think there's some bread out there somewhere that came down from heaven that that magically confers eternal life and Jesus has access to it somehow and he can give it to them. Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The human heart has a longing to be filled to the brim. And yet the human heart is like a bottomless ocean. It's been a while now, but do you remember about five years ago what was happening with the $1.5 billion Powerball lottery? Uh, Canadians were driving to New York State and spending 
hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars on tickets, even though their chances of winning were one in 300 million. Why in the world would people do that? Because the human heart has a longing to be filled to the brim, and and many believe that $1.5 billion would just about do the trick. But God implanting that longing for fullness in our hearts, it's a good longing. He's done that, that we might fill our hearts with him and his glorious infinitude. But because we've rejected God, human beings rebelliously spend their lives trying to fill that void with things other than God. The Bible calls those things idols. And as the black hole of our heart sucks in more and more idols, those things we value and prioritize more than God, or instead of God, the less we are satisfied. All the love, all the money, all the career satisfaction, all the drugs, all the adventure, all the prominence, all the promiscuous sex, never makes a dent. Our hearts long to be filled to the brim, but all that stuff is like throwing grains of sand into the Grand Canyon. It's the book of Ecclesiastes 2.0, right? Is, is this all there is? Is, is, this as, is this as good as it gets? Human beings have a fundamental hunger and thirst that can never be satisfied, never be quenched, apart from Jesus Christ. You must believe that. But once we eat this bread, once we come to Jesus and believe in him, our most fundamental human hunger is satisfied forever. That's the claim Jesus Christ makes about himself. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But the audience that Jesus is speaking to, they're blind to this good news. Why? Why don't they understand? And we can apply this beyond this Jewish crowd alone. Friends, why isn't the whole world beating a path to New City Baptist Church's doors to hear more about Jesus and the good news of his death and resurrection and God's life mediated through him? Why is it, beloved, that when we proclaim the good news about what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin to a work colleague or a family member, our neighbor, they so often yawn and just want to change the subject. These next verses, without ever, ever diminishing human responsibility, tell us that we all need to be taught by God himself before coming to faith in Jesus. It's not because Christians are so brilliant, we're so spiritually attuned, that we feasted on Christ through faith, but because God has been gracious to us first, as we sang this morning. God is sovereign in the salvation of his people. God is always the first mover. God the Father elects sinners to salvation. The Father sends his Son to save those sinners. And all the sinners the Father gives to the Son will come to Jesus in faith, every last one of them. And whoever comes to Jesus, Jesus will never drive away. It's a closed circuit of God's grace from beginning to end. 
Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Which means, beloved, for Jesus to lose a single person, the Father has given to him means either Jesus is unwilling to perform his Father's will or he's incapable of doing his Father's will. But this text won't allow us to believe either of those options. Both are absolute impossibilities. Look at verse 40 again. The language is astonishing. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. So, just follow that glorious progression. God gives his chosen ones to Jesus, and and because God gives them to Jesus, they come to Jesus. And those who are given to Jesus and who come to Jesus are omnipotently and eternally kept by Jesus. Not one is lost. Jesus will raise every one of us from the dead on the last day. Jesus says so twice just to make it crystal clear. And what is the unshakable foundation of the sovereign work of God, his his giving, our coming, his keeping, his raising, it's mentioned three times, so it's impossible for us to miss it. The will of God. The will of God. Beloved, nothing is more certain in this world than the sovereign will of God. Nothing. Verse 38 gives the ground for why Jesus will not cast out any whom the Father gives him. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And it's God the Father's sovereign will that none of his own be lost. Verse 39 says it again. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up the last day. Beloved, Jesus will not fail to keep us and raise us on the last day because it is the sovereign will of God the Father. Verse 40, he says it again. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son of Man or to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. He says that three times. It is God the Father's sovereign will that those whom he gives to Jesus, so that they come to Jesus, don't have uh, only a temporary blessing but an eternal blessing. So, Christian, be encouraged. Be greatly encouraged. And don't get tangled up trying to understand the unfathomable connection between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in all of this. Uh, This is a text, this is a glorious doctrine that should inspire worship and praise and thanksgiving and assurance in God's people, not create chinks in God's armor of blameless righteousness and infinite mercy. We want to be a church, New City, a redeemed people who revel, revel in the sovereign, electing will of God. Our sovereign God is on his throne, a God who is merciful, a God who is just, a God who is compassionate, a God who loves the unlovable, 
and who elects rebels to eternal salvation, punishes his son in their place, and raises them on the last day, all in accordance with his sovereign will. That is the God of the Bible. And he is the God we love, brothers and sisters, because he first loved us. He is the God our sinful hearts did not refuse only because he first chose us. And again, in your bulletin, I'm not going to get into it, but in your bulletin, there's more texts and things we look into in, in that passage. Verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. And then our Lord goes back to this theme, his theme of God's sovereign election and his own authority and role in the plan of human salvation. The language in verse 44 is very, very explicit. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. Which means as sinful fallen creatures, we are utterly dependent upon a spiritual insight, a teaching, an illumination implanted within us by God in fulfillment of the Old Testament promise quoted in verse 45. They will all be taught by God. And everyone who has heard the Father and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. Everyone. And because the Son came from heaven, that means when Jesus speaks about God, he knows what he's talking about because only Jesus has seen the Heavenly Father. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus reveals God the Father perfectly, and so Jesus can be trusted as a genuine mediator of divine knowledge. Jesus narrates God to us perfectly. Jesus, Jesus explains who God is to us perfectly. Jesus is God's revelation incarnated. Hear that again. Jesus is God's revelation incarnated. He isn't merely an agent of revelation, like a prophet, which is what Islam purports Jesus to be. No, Jesus is God's perfect and full revelation of himself. He himself is God. And Jesus gives us special knowledge of God that cannot be achieved through some other means, even through God dictating to us what he is like through a prophet. And so when we look into the face of Jesus Christ, our human perception of, what, of who God is and what God is like becomes a multifaceted diamond we could never hope to know otherwise. And so as verse 47 says, whoever believes in Jesus has everlasting life. So, friends, I've asked this before. I'm going to ask it throughout this series as well. Do you want to know what God is like? Then look to Jesus and listen to him. Come to him. Believe in him. Jesus mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. Jesus mediates God's life to us because Jesus does his Father's will, which is ultimately accomplished in the cross, which brings us to our final point, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And this last point won't take five minutes, so rest easy. Let's just read through the rest of the text and get the flow. Verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here, you can see him pointing to himself like this, I think. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone, not just Jews, anyone may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now be honest. How many were squirming a bit as I was reading this text aloud earlier in the service. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Right? Good grief, Pastor John. We have visitors here today. Um, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Why is he using this sort of language? I mean, even the Jews themselves, they, they're offended by it. It's like, why can't this guy give us this flesh to eat? Good grief. This is not how religious leaders uh, win friends, right? And influence people by saying stuff like this. Did you know that in the history of the church, there has been more pages written on this text than any other passage in the New Testament? It's true. If we were going by sheer number of pages then this is the most debated passage in the New Testament. And yet, Pastor John intends to wrap things up in five minutes. Amazing. The reason why so much ink has been spilled over this passage is because of its purported connection with what's called the Sacrament of the Mass in Roman Catholic circles and the Lord's Supper within Protestantism. This is a massive can of worms. I don't have time to open up this morning. I'll just tell you what's what. When Jesus is speaking, what he is speaking of here has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. I know it sounds like it. Uh, we read all those verses about drinking blood and eating flesh, and, and we think, it, well, if that's not cannibalism, then it must be the Lord's Supper, surely. But we have to put this text into the context of John's Gospel as a whole, and I think following Leon Morris and a host of other scholars, there are four reasons why this passage is not referring to the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper has not been instituted yet and will not be so until, the, until Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. In verses, if verses 49 to 58 are all about the Lord's Supper, then everything Jesus says is saying in this moment is incomprehensible to everybody who's listening. Now, that's not a definitive argument. Jesus does say things that have to be kind of picked up later on, so, but it's an argument. Number two, if Jesus were talking about the Lord's Supper, he probably would have used the language of body instead of flesh. Every time communion, the Lord's Supper, is in view in the New Testament, it's Jesus' body. The Greek word is soma, not his flesh, sarks that the writer employs in the Greek text. Every single time, without exception. Every time. For example, this is my body, which is broken for you. Never, this is my flesh, which is broken for you. A third reason, not to think this passage refers to the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion is not one of John's big themes. Have you ever noticed that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Paul all record the institution of the Lord's Supper, and John does not. Four, lastly, and most important, we need to read and understand verse 35. 
before coming to these later verses. These verses about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood are a metaphor, and verse 35 explains what the metaphor of eating flesh and drinking blood means. It means coming to and believing in Jesus. Verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's the most important verse in this whole passage. That verse controls how we read the rest of the chapter and explains this metaphor of eating and, eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Guilty sinners come to Jesus and believe in him. That's what eating his flesh and drinking his blood means. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, unless you come to me and believe in me, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Is there a group of people going out for lunch today after the service? Anybody hosting a lunch here today? This illustration is not my own. I stole it. But when we eat our lunch this afternoon, everything on our plates will be dead. Yeah. We'll be eating. All right. We're going to be eating dead cow, dead chicken, dead vegetables, dead rice. All those things were once alive, but they died so that we might live by eating them. And it was understood in a society that had its economic base rooted in agriculture that the reason you lived was some, because something else died. That's how it works. Either the fish lives or you live. Either the wheat lives or you live. Which is why this metaphor is so powerful in a first century agrarian setting. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So either Jesus dies or we die. Either we live off his life, which he gives up for us, or we die in our sin. What this text is doing, friends, is looking forward to the cross, the climax of John's gospel. This is a picture of Jesus' substitutionary death, of Jesus dying in the place of sinners. Sinners live because Jesus dies. Our sinful rebellion is punished in his body, and through his death, we have life. Sinner, come to Jesus. Believe in him. Eat his flesh, drink his blood, and have life. Amen.